prepared for whatever this world, this crazy ass world might throw at us in the near future. It started out saying that there were important things to know right now as preppers. Pay particular attention, it said, to your local areas, your local evacuation centers and your local zones that are being presented by your law enforcement. And they say you need to see the email and the information that is attached to really get an idea of what's going on. There are, according to these reports, weather warfare events going on. Now, whether that is true or conspiracy, I don't know. What I do know is that Greece and other countries are catching arsonists. And I'm talking a massive amount of these arsonists who are out there lighting our world on fire. There hasn't been any talk about whether these arsonists are uh, government officials, whether they have any ties to extreme, uh, you know, natural groups, naturalist groups, or what might actually be happening. But there are arsonists right now lighting our world on fire. Railroad tie centers, refineries, recycling plants. This is, if not sabotage, then an act of international war. So they say to watch out for evasive action that needs to be required by preppers, by people in the community. You need to, according to their warnings, form neighborhood sleep watches and sleep shifts. Now, for anybody who thinks that that might be crazy, I want to tell you that the first 48 to 72 hours, here's what's going to happen as soon as the balloon pops, as soon as you see change in your environment. You're going to have social unrest, riots, chaos, chaos in the street. Now, with that, a lot of people are going to be able to power through the initial, what, 24 hours of being awake. Let me tell you something, after 24 hours of being awake, when you've already run through your adrenaline, when you've run through everything keeping you up, when you're running on Red Bull or running on Monster Energy drinks, or you have caffeine supplements, or you have coffee, whatever it is, there's going to be people popping Adderall like they're vitamin C's. There's going to be people taking you know, all sorts of uppers. You're going to be trying to stay awake. And in fact, the US military and other militaries around our world they always gave their people uppers, things like methamphetamine, to try to stay awake and stay alert. Because if there's one thing worse than a junkie, it's a dead soldier. And so they would rather have a controlled junkie, a controlled addict, or a controlled person of substance use than a dead soldier on the front lines. The first 24 hours, people might be able to power through. A lot of people won't. There's going to be, in the first 72 hours to 96 hours, heart attacks because people's hearts just aren't used to pumping like this they're not used to staying awake your brain you know you don't think about your heart beating you're not sitting here watching this video going beat 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 and telling your heart to beat this is happening beyond our ability to control so when your brain becomes fatigued and your heart starts to get tired and it's working too much you know there's a circadian rhythm and a sleep schedule that as you as a person start to go to sleep your heart rate goes way down. I'm down in the 40s when I'm sleeping because I have an active lifestyle. We go out and we run, we skateboard, we roller skate every week, we bicycle ride, we do these things. And so because of that, my heart's used to doing the pump, 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 pump. And so when I'm resting, it is really resting. I'm in the 40s. So a lot of people, when they're not at rest, are going to continue to be in the 70s, 80s, 90s for 24, 48 hours. That's where the heart starts chalking away at all these different bits of plaque that we put into our bodies and let really bad things happen. 
So you might want to start the first 24 hours of a disaster with some low-dose aspirin. There's great medical studies out there. I'm not a doctor. I'm not telling you what to do. I'm not giving medical advice. This is what I would tell myself in an event of an emergency. I might want to start taking some low-dose aspirin. That's if you're not already on a regimen of that course. What's going to happen, and scientific studies show this, is that there's no real difference between low-dose aspirin, that's the baby aspirins, or a regular dose. But taking an aspirin, a low-dose aspirin, does have an efficacy, a, a rate of efficiency at stopping and thinning things out enough that you're not pumping through the plaques and the arteries and things like that. So maybe that's something that I would do when that starts. Forming a neighborhood watch to let you get sleep very, very important if you're not getting sleep. Now these, the emails that I'm getting and the words that I'm getting, these are from people who are saying that things are happening soon, very soon. Do I see them happening in the next week? Not necessarily, but I'm gonna take note because when I got my last warning from people saying to watch out for something between Russia and Ukraine, what happened? The Wagner leader, the mercenary leader, got his plane shot down with his second in command, with all the elite bodyguards, plane shut down. We've seen elites around the world get taken out. Some of them are falling off cruise ships, others are getting into car accidents. This is happening. So when I get a warning like this, I take a little bit of note, I take a bead to what I see happening in the rest of the world, and then I act accordingly. Am I going to run out and start telling my neighbors to form off watches tonight? No, but I might start writing the plans on what to do when it's time for that. So they say you must start thinking about evasive actions. Your evasive actions are going to be how you get out of evade, evasive. How you get out of your house. If somebody's coming in the front door, how are you getting out of the back door? Somebody's busting in one window, are you getting to another one? You have to have a tool for self-defense, and we cover this in this month's Patreon. You have to have a tool for self-defense in every part of your house or carrying with you on your person. If you don't touch it, you don't have it. You don't control it, you can't use it. So when the glass breaks on the other side of, or the room that you're in, if the glass breaks and you have to run all the way to the other house or God forbid, the glass breaks or the door gets knocked in, where your weapon is, where your tool of self-defense is, and you have to go past your invader, past the person trying to do your harm to try to get to it, well, boy, you are screwed with a capital screw, you're done. And so you have to have that evasive action, that thought pro uh, process at all times. They're saying to form what uh, neighborhood watch shifts right now. I don't think it's time for that, but we, we better start thinking about it. Uh, they say warn others to wake up 100%. If you're not telling people that they're being controlled, that they're being lied to, that they are being manipulated, you're not doing them any justice. Now, there are people you want to avoid. I'm going to note that. And if you don't start to avoid people that will be bad for you, I'm talking toxic people who want to do bad things to good people, you've got to start making some real good judgment calls there right now and start saying things like, well, you know, that person's a real POS and, you know, I really don't want to, uh, to be dealing with them. And so, you got to make those calls now. Who you're going to accept, who you're going to talk to, who you're not going to. Start thinking about that too. Uh, they say share info far and wide. It might be time to start printing out some uh, ideas and some things to give to other people, especially people new to it. 
imagine the weight on people's head when this finally pops and they don't have the ability to go through all the things that you have had weeks and months to think about, years to think about in some cases. You have own, honed different skills. You know and you've thought about your house and you thought about protecting it and you thought about getting away from it and you thought about keeping your family safe. All of a sudden, all of the floodwaters come crashing down on them and they don't know what to do. They're going to be freaked the F out. They're going to be scared out of their mind. They're going to be shooting at shadows in the night. They're going to be killing things that go bump. Might just be a granny, might be somebody's dog. They're going to be trigger happy little fools. So if you have some printed out things that you can hand to them, things like how to secure your area of operation, how to communicate with your neighbors, how to approach a house, things like that, it might help you know, it might save their life. And that's really a good thing. That's what we're here to do, save lives. We're not here to Rambo win the end game. You know, we're here to save lives. That means saving the lives of good people. So the people you care about. So they say to share this info, print out information. They say, don't go to sleep at once. So that's important for inside of your household. Do not go to sleep all at the same time. Right now we're used to that, especially in the Western world. Nobody keeps watch. Now, if you're a night person like I am, you probably stay up later than maybe your kids do have to go to school, a sibling or a spouse does that has to get up in the morning. But you're naturally keeping watch while other people are asleep. Don't all go to sleep at once. If it's lights out at eight o'clock, think of how easy a pattern of behavior that is for a predator to watch outside of your home. I can watch your lights go out. I can watch you go inside and not leave again after a certain amount of time. If you're a smoker and you go out for a smoke break, I can sit and watch when you come out and when you stop coming out. I can form my own conclusions. All it takes is a couple of days of pattern behavior monitoring to see these trends and to get an idea to say, hey, this guy goes to sleep at this time. His whole family's asleep. They're waking up at this time. Here is when I act. Here's my opportunity. And they're going to use that opportunity to attack you. So don't everybody go to sleep at once. That's a real good point in this warning. Report micro conditions. So if you see something that looks a little bit wonky, a little bit weird, talk about it. Ask your neighbors, hey, did you have somebody over there that night? Or Hey, I, I know I heard some shouting. Was that you guys? I don't know who it was. Talk to them because then they are going to be like, no, I didn't have anybody here. You saw a car in my house. You saw a car in my driveway. Or, you know, it might be their kids having a party. Who knows? But talk to people because through that engagement, you're going to find information. You're going to gather intelligence. Uh, look up and watch for attacks that are being set up. Now, at the beginning of this video, I talked to you about all these fires. Greece called out arsonists. They've arrested hundreds, not one, not two, hundreds of arsonists. Canada, arsonists. The USA, arsonists. Now, what's happening here is maybe these people have ties to Russia. They might have ties to China. They might have ties to these other countries. But you don't hear about it on the news, do you? You don't hear about how it was some, you know, we can't. We're in a globalized society. We have to accept everybody, no matter where they're from. So if they're not a member or citizen of that country, a member of that government or military, there's nothing the news has to say about it. But are these Russian ops setting fires in, in America? If they're not, then who the freak is doing it? Who the freak is setting these refineries on fire, these railroad ties on fire, 
these buildings on fire, these warehouses on fire, these woods on fire. Who's doing it? Now you can say, okay, there's something going on in our climate, in our world, and it's dry conditions. At a refinery? You're telling me there's a dry condition in a warehouse? No, that has nothing to do with the atmosphere or environment. Somebody is doing this. So who is doing this? And then we have to question why. Why are they doing this? And what is the end game? And where is it going to finally affect? And then we start figuring out some things. We start going, oh, man, we're in deep, deep doo-doo over here in America. Uh, so we talk about humidity, weather control. Remember that every single thing and person on Earth has its own, they say, signature. And they're talking about uh, crimes happening. We see these things happening all over the world. Uh, they talk about how the earth is being polluted, purposefully polluted. What are they talking about here? I'm not sure. Observe live camera feeds in your area. They say the one man, uh, one person captured video of another using a laser to ignite fires in different regions. Uh, they say uh, the camera feeds provide and serve you visual alert systems. It allows you to watch when and where you are being attacked. Uh, create a warning group. Look up the effects of different things on your body. This is just smart stuff to do. So this is just one part of the warning. And this, this warning goes on pages and pages and pages. Gas up your cars. Move your propane tanks out of reach to be attacked. Uh, <clears throat> spray water on your house. These are smart, smart things. These are things we need to be aware of. If you don't start getting ready, you might not have time to be prepared. Share this far and wide. <clears throat> Excuse me. Let people know that it's time to be a man, to be a woman, to be ready. Good luck, everyone. This is not good. This is not good. So... Now these motherfuckers are setting everything on fire. We gotta be up to speed on shit. I don't live by a large forest or anything, but I do have a park down the street that has a lot of trees in it that it could be a target, but I got a camera that points down there. I can rotate it 360 degrees, so I'm going to have to keep a look on that. And, uh, got to watch my aunties. Make sure that they don't answer. Well, one doesn't walk. Make sure my aunt doesn't answer the door. People that she doesn't recognize. or I don't even really want her. When Juanita was here, we opened the door. But now that it's just me, you know, I might be sleeping. I don't hear the doorbell and I hear her running to the door, something like that. And when the door opens and stuff, I get a, you know, this little chime and stuff that I have for the doorbell. I'm hoping Brad is wrong. But he said just like the other day, something big was going to happen and they blew old boy's plane from up under him. And then you gotta look at it, man. We haven't had no lightning storms and shit to have all these damn fires and shit. 
And Dr. Grant put out some information yesterday about how FEMA and the U.S. Marines over on Maui had a shootout. The Marines caught FEMA digging mass graves, putting charred bodies of men, women, and children into it and covering it up. But you ain't seeing that on CNN, the, ca the Caucasian News Network. I didn't even see that on Al Jazeera. That was reported by an officer on the island of Maui. Didn't hear about it though, did you? No, you didn't hear about that. I put that up on Blacks being sent it to uh, people on my list. So they'd be up to speed. Because everything that the doctor shares with me, I, I get it out there. Because I know what they're trying to do. They're trying to shut him down. But they can't shut him down if he has somebody like me sharing all of his material to various people. You know? Hold on for a second. What do you want, sweetheart? Huh? What, you want to make a cameo? Let everybody know you're here? Go ahead, say hello to everybody. Oh, that's a big yawn. You sleep good? Lily, what you want? Hello, girl. I already gave y'all a treat, and y'all been outside. You gonna, you gonna badger me for another treat? Huh? Uh, really? Okay, so you're telling me about it, right? Oh, all right, you ain't gotta get loud. I'll give you a treat. Hold on a second. Well, anyway, family, um, keep your head on a swivel. I don't know what these white people are about to do. Black family, A's here. I see how Professor Black Truth dropped something special. The title is, uh, it's about Trump. Now the Saturday crime. Uh, let me go ahead and just start it. Now the Saturday crime. Oh, I'm sorry. Sorry, that was not what I meant to say. Yeah, I'm supposed to be taking time off, but you know how it is. Every time I think I'm out, they pull me right back in. It was the scowl heard around the world. The orange man comes one step closer to wearing prison orange. Okay, there's so much crime, just so much crime from the self-proclaimed most law-abiding citizens in America. It's amazing. Now, let's go ahead and deal with the point that I'm sure a lot of you are already thinking about. As politicized as this clearly all is, there's also a certain amount of poetic justice going on. Thirty years ago, you had five young men in New York, almost all of them black, who had been falsely accused of rape and railroaded into prison by a combination of dirty police tactics and an unscrupulous DA's office filled with anti-black racist ideologues, all backed up by a vicious white media that sensationalized this to make criminals out of just a bunch of kids. Donald Trump himself took out a full-page ad in the New York Times saying that the death penalty needed to be brought back because of this alleged crime, this for five innocent young teenagers. 
As we all know, the victim in this case was a white woman. And that was the sole reason for all the phony outrage, for the white media sensationalism and obsession with the case. She had been sexually assaulted, severely beaten, but was still alive, and she eventually recovered. But she was white, and the teenagers accused of harming her were black, and that was all that mattered. And Donald Trump wanted the death penalty because crime, meaning black people in general, were running amok and out of control. As we all know, and as many people knew then, those black teenagers hadn't harmed anyone, but they were black. And because these kids had not really had any experience dealing with the police at all, it was actually very easy for the police to be able to manipulate them using all of those cop psychological tricks. The flames of this white media-generated lynch mob were being fanned by Donald Trump. Now, what nobody talks about is that just a few months after the Central Park jogger case hit the white media, there was another violent attack in New York. This other case also involved a group of teenagers and a lone pedestrian who was violently assaulted. But the white media gave it very little attention. The reason why was because this other case differed from the Central Park jogger case in two crucial regards. First, the victim who was beaten by a roving gang of teenage thugs was killed in the attack. He wasn't just injured, he was murdered. And secondly, the teenagers who killed this pedestrian were all white. The victim in this case was a black 16-year-old, Yusuf Hawkins. His murderers were a gang of nearly three dozen white teenagers, many of them wielding baseball bats and at least one of them carrying a gun. It was that individual who shot and killed that child, Yusuf Hawkins. This wasn't the only time a white mob of teenagers had murdered a black person in New York City in the 1980s. Before the use of Hawkins murder, or even the Central Park jogger case, you had the murder of Willie Turks in 1982. He was an MTA worker who was savagely beaten by a white mob of teenagers and early 20-somethings. This resulted in his death. Donald Trump, who I'm pretty sure was living in New York City in the early 80s, didn't feel compelled to take out a full-page ad in the New York Times over that murder. He didn't even take out an ad in the classifieds. And there was no white media sensation about this murder either. It was treated as just another violent incident, not worth making a big deal out of. There was also another killing in 1986. This time it was Michael Griffith, a construction worker, picking up his paycheck from a job site when he and a couple of his friends were ambushed by a white mob, many of them teenagers carrying baseball bats. See a pattern forming yet? Donald Trump was in New York City in 1986. Keep in mind, this was just three years before the Central Park jogger case. And yet Trump wasn't moved by the heinous murder of Michael Griffith to take out a full-page ad in the paper or even to make a statement. And Trump wasn't alone. The white media, who would be in an uproar about the Central Park jogger case, wasn't too worked up about Michael Griffith's killing at all. Nobody was asking what was behind all these incidents of white youth ambushing and murdering black New Yorkers throughout the 1980s. They totally ignored it. Why? Because in those cases, the victims were black, which meant that their deaths were irrelevant. But more importantly, the killers were white, which meant that they shouldn't be punished, certainly not for killing black people. Donald Trump definitely wasn't calling for any punishment in any of those cases. If you watched any white media content of the 1970s, when crap like Death Wish was all the rage, or the 1980s, when New York was going through the worst crime wave, quote-unquote, in its history, nobody was showing movies or TV shows with roving gangs of white youths beating unarmed black citizens to death. But that's the reality of what was happening in New York City in the 1980s. 
racists like Donald Trump never got worked up for a Yusuf Hawkins or a Michael Griffith or any of the black people who had been harmed by these roving white teenage gangs in New York. And neither did his buddy Rudy Giuliani, who insists to this day that even if the Central Park Five weren't guilty of the crime they've been falsely accused of, well, they had to have been guilty of something. Which, by the way, is the catch-all rationalization that black men are always hit with. Whenever a black man is accused of something, even when it's shown that there's no evidence to support the accusation, racists in white society will say, well, the nigger has to be guilty of something. And when the black person goes to trial and proves their innocence, or when a black person is released from prison after having spent years, if not decades, incarcerated for a crime they didn't commit, which everyone knew they hadn't committed from the start, the catch-all excuse for white society is, well, if they didn't do this one, you know they had to have done something else. That is the one-size-fits-all rationalization that always gets dragged out to justify incarcerating black people. Because everyone understands that the crime the black person committed isn't whatever phony accusation is being put against them. Their crime is being black. That's why all these racists say the exact same phrase, because they all know what the real crime is. Doesn't matter if the black person's innocent. Doesn't matter if they know they're innocent. What matters is the black person needs to be put in prison because reasons. So now you have Trump and Giuliani having their mugshots taken. Now you have them as the ones proclaiming their innocence, so largely deaf ears. The white media circus is in full swing about this one. Well, I guess what goes around does come around. And isn't it deliciously ironic how the same white conservatives who constantly lecture black people about how the system isn't perfect, but it's the only one we've got, so you have to have faith in it, even if it lets you down. The people who have always told black Americans that the police don't target black citizens and prosecutors aren't targeting black people either. They're not defending the system now. In fact, they're railing against it. None of the lies and thinly veiled insults that they throw at us when we point out how prosecutors target us are sufficient now. No lectures about believe in the system even when it lets you down. Yeah, these indictments have been like truth serum for these racists. And no, I don't feel sorry for these scumbags. When Giuliani was mayor of New York, he made the amazingly corrupt Bernard Carrick his police commissioner. Bernard Carrick also has the distinction of being the first New York City police commissioner to ever go to prison. Well, I guess jailbirds of a feather flock together. This was who Giuliani was running buddies with back in the day. You have the so-called champions of law and order, who have been the main ones committing the crimes and hanging out with felons because this is the criminal class in America. Now, let's also talk about something else. Fannie Willis, she didn't bring these indictments to do black folks any favors. She's been sitting on this for three years now and wasn't really doing anything about it. You can lie to yourself about that if you want, but you're a fool if you actually think she was going to bring this case on her own. It was only after the feds announced that they were bringing their case against Trump, not to mention the Manhattan DA, that she suddenly decided that she could bring hers. Truth be told, she actually had the most evidence of wrongdoing by Trump. And if there was anybody who had the strongest case, it was her, but she didn't want to bring one because she's desperately hoping that she can run for higher office and she doesn't want to offend any of those good old boy donors down there who she's going to be begging for campaign cash later on. Fannie Willis is like Barack Obama in that these white supremacists don't care about how harmless she's been to them or how many of their boots she's been licking. All they see is a black woman having their hero Trump and his pals forced to appear for court and then putting on mugshots. shots up. 
I get a kick in the body watching the white right convention shriek and whine like babies about this. Seeing trash like Trump and Giuliani made to pose for mugshots is heartwarming, I admit. But I'm not going to make a saint out of a sinner either. I'm not naive or foolish enough to think that Fannie Willis did this for black people or that she's thinking about anything other than how this can benefit her with the DNC later down the line. All right, now let's get to the part that isn't being talked about. The reasons the Democrats are bringing this raft of charges against Trump is partially justifiable. That's just a fact. But it's also partly politics. That's a fact, too. The January 6th insurrection was undoubtedly an incident that required heads to roll. If a mob of white supremacist trash can storm the Capitol, force the government officials to flee for their lives, and people don't go to prison for it, even high-ranking individuals, then it would be an invitation for more incidents just like it, or worse ones to take place. After the insurrection, people were bracing for all hell to break loose from the Justice Department, but it didn't, not under Trump's Attorney General Bill Barr, or under his successor, Merrick Garland. Instead, we saw that white privilege was enough to insulate someone from being punished, even for trying to overthrow the U.S. government. But then again, why not? After the Civil War, the entire Confederate leadership was allowed to go scot-free and live their lives. Robert Lee was the military commander of the Confederacy, and not only did he not go to prison, he was allowed to go and become a professor at Princeton University. I'm not making that up. Robert Lee was allowed to live out his days in comfort. Jefferson Davis was the first and last president of the Confederacy. He was the man who led the largest act of mass treason in U.S. history. But he only did a brief bit in prison and then was allowed to go right back to Virginia where he resumed invoking the exact same extremist rhetoric as he had before the war. So white privilege is more than enough to keep people from being punished for most anything. But there is also the political dimension to all of this. Donald Trump scared the Republican establishment with how easily he got their own base to turn against them. Yes, he claimed to be one of theirs, and he helped to get some of their guys into political office, but the GOP leaders will never forget that their introduction to Trump was being insulted by him, made into targets for his rabid base, and that when the GOP politicians tried to get their own voters, voters who had followed and voted for them for decades to ignore Trump, instead their own voters ignored them. A lot of the GOP brass like Mitch McConnell were able to make use of Trump, like for capturing a large number of federal judgeships, but they never liked him. When someone comes into your house, a house that you've ruled without rival or question for decades, a house where everyone bows and scrapes to you and you alone, when some outsider pops in out of nowhere and takes those same masses who supported you and gets them to turn against you, you're not going to appreciate that even if they do you a couple of favors here and there, even if he agrees to give you some things that you want, even important things, at the end of the day, he's still an interloper. The GOP establishment expected that at some point, Trump would show some sort of deference and respect for the positions that they've held for so long, that he would show them that he understood that he had to take orders from them at some point. But if there's one thing Trump has shown, it's that once he gets his hands on power, he doesn't believe in sharing. Trump had the GOP base wrapped around his finger, and he had no problem showing the GOP leadership that he could weaponize their voters against them. If you're having a dinner party with your best friends, people you've known all your life, people who suck up to you like crazy, what would you do if some lout barged in uninvited, walked up in your house, put their feet up on your furniture, and then began calling you a loser in what you thought was your house? And when you look at your party guests, 
instead of them being offended by the disrespect that you're being shown, instead of them demanding that this interloper get out, because after all, they've known you for decades and they've known this guy for five minutes, what would you do if your own party guests, your friends, began to applaud this interloper who was calling you a loser and saying that he's right and telling you that they're not going to come to your house anymore unless this guy is there too? Even if this interloper occasionally does your bidding, you're going to resent him. Politicians are hideously insecure. That Donald Trump was able to swap the GOP aside so easily, that's something that they can't forget or forgive because power is easily lost in a town like D.C. You're only as powerful as people think you are. Donald Trump managed to diminish the GOP base in the eyes of their own voters to show them as being so weak that without him, their own base would have no reason to go to the polls. So make no mistake, there's a contingent of GOP leaders who are glad that this has happened. If the Democrats do manage to take Trump down, that solves a problem for the Republicans because then Trump's base are not going to attack Mitch McConnell and Kevin McCarthy for that. Sure, their voters will be mad, but the white right gets mad about everything. They claim that they would stop watching false news, or I mean Fox News, after Bill O'Reilly got the boot, but of course they kept on watching. Tucker Klansman, I mean uh, Carlson, he got Bill O'Reilly's old time slot, and they loved him too. Up until he got the boot, and the same white right said, this time they really mean it. They're going to stop watching Fox News. But of course they didn't. Sure, there was a predictable dip in ratings after Carlson left, but those numbers have already started to rebound. Like I said, the racist white right are like pigs at the trough. They'll gobble up the slop no matter who serves it up. For all of the legal complexity and even poetic justice, at its base, this is just another political football in the game of power politics. But there's something else that I've noticed that I think needs to be said. Call it my black intuition, but the vibes these white people on these cable news stations are throwing off is that a lot of them are not pleased that Fannie Willis chose to make Trump take a mugshot. Yes, there's the orange man bad contingent, and of course, the never Trumpers. There's also a lot of these folks on these white cable networks who seem to be more than a little miffed about what Fannie Willis is doing, or at least how she's going about it. You know, it reminds me of how they reacted when Kamala Harris was low-key implying that Biden was racist during the 2020 primary debates, back when she dinged him about his position on school busing back in the day. The white media and the white voters on the left didn't like that. As they saw it, she didn't have enough rank, racially speaking, to call down a white man like she was doing. And they showed her that at the polls. I'm catching similar vibes from a lot of these white media and commentary types about Fannie Willis making Trump take a mugshot and her decision to ask the judge to start Trump's trial for March 4th, which will be Super Tuesday. That's what you call an unforced error. If you want to underscore that this is totally and completely about nothing more than hurting Trump politically, this is how you do it. Talk about trying to be too clever by half. Fannie Willis is trying to appeal to a white leftist audience I guess she's doing her own version of, hey, if the Republicans can do some dirty tricks with their positions, watch what I can do. Problem is, Fannie Willis is a community college level lawyer. She doesn't have the skill or the intelligence to run the tables against Trump. If her cases fall apart, if the other co-defendants decide not to flip on Trump, if this goes the same way that the Mueller investigation did, where practically nobody was willing to turn against Trump, and if she winds up getting some of the smaller fish but simply can't land the big one, then the same white media who's acting so elated with her right now, 
they're going to also turn on it. Sure, they love the feast that she's provided for them. They're getting views and clicks out of it. But ultimately, they can get mileage out of talking about the fall of Fanny Willis, too, if this doesn't pan out. So the great game continues regardless. Speaking of games, when talking about the 2024 election, the white media and their online minions are all saying that the big thing hurting the Republicans is abortion, LGBT rights, anti-trans legislation. They've been going out of their way to say abortion and LGBT rights when it comes to talking about factors that the 2024 election hinges on. This is their narrative. And you can pretty much tell this came from DNC headquarters. The Democrats are making it excruciatingly clear that they want to cater to white suburban women. And when they talk about LGBT issues, they claim that that appeals to young voters. So those are the buttons that they're trying to push. Since the bottom fell out of the Democrats' black support after the Obama betrayal, the Democrats have been furiously trying to stitch together a new voter coalition to make up for the solid black support that they've lost. They've tried to put a pretty face on it, but senior Democratic strategist James Carville let the mask slip when he was on Ari Melber's show and admitted that black votership was actually down in 2022, and Democrats better be worried for what this means in 2024. He's right. The only reason Biden is president is because all those black constituents who stayed home in 2016, I'm talking about Detroit, Philadelphia, and Atlanta, they showed up in 2020. Without that black support, Biden wouldn't have won the presidency and the Democrats wouldn't have gotten control of both houses of Congress. Black voters single-handedly gave them control of the U.S. government. And what did Democrats do to reward black voters for giving them this gift? They did nothing. Oh, they gave everybody else legislation and tangible specifically for them. So when they try to give you that democracy hangs in the balance crap again, tell them to bounce. If the stakes are really so high, if America stands on the precipice of being a fascist state, if the danger is really so great as they say, then it ought to be easy for them to give us what we're owed. God knows they haven't given us anything else. But not only are they refusing to pay the reparations they owe, but they also flat out refuse to do the very empty proposals that they made in 2020, like Biden's pathetic so-called White House Police Accountability Commission, or their stupid lift all boats nonsense. Obviously, neither one of those so-called proposals would have done anything significant for black people, but the Democrats are so dedicated to the principle of doing absolutely nothing for black people under any circumstances, that even those two empty gestures were too much. They are psychopathically driven to make sure black people don't get anything, even if it means Democrats lose office and become a permanent political minority. Some people on the right have said the Democrats are obsessed with nailing Trump. No, they're preoccupied with Trump. But what they're obsessed with is making sure that black people get nothing. That's the Democrats' obsession. And it's also the Republicans' obsession, too. Both parties are determined to die on this hill. So I say, let them. Democrats are trying to thread a particularly thin needle. They're pivoting hard to those non-black constituencies that they're hoping to gather. They're making it clear they're not talking about black people unless they feel they have no other choice. And even then, it's going to be just in passing. The Democrats want white women and LGBT people to feel that they're special in the eyes of the white Democratic leadership. And unlike with black people, Democrats have no problem delivering things for white women or the LGBT community, at least the white portion of it. So that's why all the Democrats talk is about abortion and trans rights, because as they see it, 
That's going to be their new Democratic base, one that is meant to make the black constituents, which have apparently become a little bit too uppity, irrelevant. At least that's what they hope. So those are my thoughts about the Trump administration's family photo. Yes, it's great to see a number of these racist reprobates getting a taste of their own medicine. It's good, and it's long overdue, and they deserve it. That's not the problem. The problem is that after the sugar rush of seeing these scumbags humiliated inevitably wears off, what do we have to show for it? How have we benefited from it? If it's just about seeing them made to walk in the shoes of black people that they persecuted, that's fine. I'm there for it. But the Democrats don't give a damn about that. The only time they ever mention black people is when they want to try to hide behind our history and our suffering, much of which they inflicted on us, so that they can do things for other people. To them, our purpose is to be used as rhetorical shields, and they'll give us a pat on the head and say, thank you, oh, you're so righteous, aren't you? Well, it's a brand new day, and there's more and more black people who are finally learning that we have to demand better than that. And that means not being distracted. When they try to dangle a Trump prosecution in front of us, our answer is supposed to be, that's nice, but a Trump conviction is no substitute for the money you owe us. The white media is doing the most to make a circus out of Donald Trump's arrest and his mugshot. They want people to be obsessed about it, especially black people. Oh, shouldn't you be fixated on this? This is a historical moment, don't you know? Well, the only photo that we're interested in is the picture of the check we're owed. Good evening, and be one. I'd like to take a moment to mention some of our contributors. Sandra Bates, Kevin Buckner, Black Mama, Gwendolyn Langston, and Brian Anderson. Salute to them and thank you to everyone for listening, liking, and sharing this message. Black empowerment only exists because of you. 100 plus NYPD cops identified as a potential problem. My first thought is only 100. Is 100? Okay. New York Police Department program designed to identify police officers likely to break departmental rules. is red flag more than one hundred cops for a second time, raising concerns that efforts to rein in potential problematic officers are ineffective. Think? You think? Since it began August 2020, the NYPD's early intervention program aimed at curbing bad police practices without disciplining officers has investigated the service records of 1,494 cops. New York Daily News with the details. During the first three months of this year, 362 officers became part of that tally after raising eyebrows in the department for having multiple civilian complaints or other issues. Of those 362 officers, flagged from January to March of 2023, total of 106 of them, 29%, let's call it a third, went on to be flagged again between April and June, the data shows. So many officers were flagged twice in the first six months of 2023. It's a, well, most alarming revelation. That from Christopher Dunn, legal director of the New York Civil Liberties Union. That's a clear indicator the early intervention program is failing to curb misconduct, Dunn said, of the data presented in the program's most recent report. The early intervention program aims to make sure officers comply with the law as they enforce the law by taking a close look at those who face such problems as accusations of bias or having within a 12 month period, at least three arrests that borough district attorneys 
decline to prosecute. Other red flags that might signal officers are possible candidates for future rule breaking include involvement in vehicle pursuits. I've had courtroom testimony deemed non-credible by judges. A judicial ruling in which criminal evidence they presented is suppressed. Allegations of multiple abuses of force. 1494 reviews resulted in 280 interventions, including 55 in the first three months of 2023. Under the program, interventions can include retraining, enhanced supervisor, or a change in assignment. Interventions are seen as a way to correct wrongdoings without disciplining the officers. Let's talk about the critics of this. Can I raise my hand and be one too? Critics of the intervention program's effectiveness are also concerned that 265 cops were scrutinized in the first three months of 2023 because they had at least three arrests in a 12-month time frame that were not prosecuted. NYPD said the number of declined prosecution cases is not as high as it appears, given that the category was not reviewed in the last quarter of 2023. Noted that prosecutorial discretion was the main reason spokesman adding that because of a change in policy, many low-level offenses are not being prosecuted. And in other corrupt cop-related news, already disgraced ex-Suffolk County Police Chief James Burr was arrested Tuesday morning for soliciting a sex worker inside Farmingville Park, Long Island, officials announced. Burke, who joined the County Police Department in 1986, was busted by County Police with the Suffolk County District Attorney's Office saying he was charged with public lewdness and exposure of a person. Suffolk County Executive Spokeswoman Mary Kate Gilfoyle said he faced charges of soliciting a sex act and criminal solicitation too. Additional possible charges were pending against the ex-lawman. One-time County Chief of Department pleaded guilty in 2016 after resigning his police position for assaulting a suspect in custody. After the man broke into his department vehicle, he admitted to violating the civil rights of the victim and then orchestrating the cover-up of his crime. 56-year-old Burke, who was promoted to the high-ranking position in 2012, tried to avoid jail by claiming he needed to assist his cancer-stricken mom. He was a 31-year veteran of the department. Officials say the new arrest came at 10.15 a.m. with Burke taken into custody at the Suffolk County Vietnam Veterans Memorial Park. Suffolk County Park Rangers placed Burke under arrest. Rangers had been monitoring the site in the wake of complaints about people that they'd been soliciting sex there when Burke allegedly attempted to do so with a plain clothes officer. Burke was sentenced to 46 months in federal Prison. After his convictions in the December 14, 2012 meeting of the Smithtown man who was handcuffed and in custody at the 4th Precinct in Suffolk County, he faced possible sentence of 20 years. That is February 26, 2016 court appearance. Now, prosecutors said at the time of Burke's arrest, they had 11 cooperating officers who witnessed the beatdown. Burke even admitted to beating drug addict Christopher Loeb. After the man broke into this department SUV outside his home, Loeb made off with a duffel bag holding a gun, belt, ammunition, handcuffs, several sex toys, 
I don't want to blaze over that. That's a bush right there. Okay. Uh, it doesn't say that a service weapon was in there, but a gun belt was, as were apparently sex toys. I don't know that you should be leaving certain things, though, in your police vehicle. Wouldn't that be a department rule? The sex toys? I, I mean, I guess. Well, I don't know. Is that, is that up to him? Did they take no position on that? Box of cigars. Loeb reached a $1.5 million federal court settlement with Suffolk County, the taxpayers, after bringing a lawsuit in the case. Critics also question Burke's handling of the Gilgo Beach killings. And serial killer. This guy. Very scary guy. The first three victims discovered in late 2010 on Long Island, not long after he was 